Hi, I'm Joseph Marx, and this is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA. Each week, we engage with section members and professional colleagues working in the region and dealing with many of the same issues that we follow. Our aim is to promote greater dialogue and creative synergy among all. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to another episode of EconoPolitics. Today's guest is Dr. Christopher Sabatini, Senior Fellow for Latin America in the US and the Americas program at Chatham House, London. Dr. Sabatini is a long-term observer of Latin American politics and currently has the advantage of filtering the news from the region through a London, dare I say, a European perspective. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate it. We've got a lot to cover, so let's, uh, let's begin with a quick overview of some of the major current issues in Latin America. Let's begin with, uh, with Venezuela. Uh, where do things stand right now, and what are the likely next steps in this drama? It's, it's difficult to, to really figure this out because, of course, the standoff has been going on for some time. Uh, Maduro has had far more resistance than people ever expected. Uh, then, of course, there was the, the uh, extradition of, of Alex Saab, which derailed the negotiations for a moment. Um, I think they'll go back on track. I think the only way out of this deadlock is some form of negotiation. I actually think the complete collapse of, of uh, the Maduro government, is, its state really doesn't exist as a state. That's part of the problem, is, is really, in many ways, not a very desirable option, despite the fact that many have been betting on this occurring for a long time. Um, the question is, is what can be done to get these uh, both negotiations back on track and to make them real? And I think the United States has to put a little bit more muscle. And by muscle, I don't mean force. I mean, actually quite the opposite of, of carrots in, in the game and say, you do X, we will do Y uh, in terms of lifting the, the um, sanctions or finding ways that they can be lifted even in full and that that revenue, revenue generated would come in uh, through an honest, independent and in international broker. Um, that's going to have to happen to alleviate the suffering and also to make sure that Venezuela, whenever there is a transition, however it occurs, has a soft landing. Um, and I, you know, on the one hand, I sympathize. You mentioned, Joseph, the, the European perspective. I sympathize with the European Union's desire to monitor the regional elections on November 21st. I do worry that if it does this without any uh, um, critical uh, independent uh, analysis and, and does not adhere to traditional electoral observation standards, that it could be really just, you know, uh, something in favor of the Maduro government, which it doesn't deserve, and would further, I think, weaken the commitment of the opposition to elections, uh, when obviously sitting out the elections has not served them particularly well, certainly not in 2005, and certainly not since when they have set them up. So, you know, I think that's the really path, real path. I do think we're sort of beginning to focus, but I think it requires the U.S. in particular is saying, Look, we'll give you this. Uh, we're, you know, we're not going to give it to you away for free, but there are real incentives for you to play ball because the, the government hasn't in, in, in part. And, and, and to keep the opposition on track, I think the EU has to do an honest election observation come November 21st. All right. Cuba hasn't been in the headlines in the last few days, but it's always, as you know, a major issue in U.S. policy towards Latin America. What's the latest? First of all, you know, it's funny. Cuba really does occupy an inordinate disproportionate uh, attention in, in the hemisphere. When, when Obama traveled to Cuba, you know, 
Scott Reston, a New York Times journalist, once said about Latin America, Americans will do everything for it except to read about it and understand it. And, but except when it comes to Cuba. Everyone has an opinion on Cuba. No one pays attention. Suddenly when Obama traveled, it was, you would have thought it was the only country south of uh, Florida or so, of course, for most Floridians, it is the only country south of Florida um, and south of the Rio Bravo. Um, the Cuba, you know, Miguel Diaz-Canel, while he doesn't have a tenuous grip on power, and it's not a particularly comfortable one, uh, he doesn't have the revolutionary creds of, of Raul and Fidel and many of the historicos, some of whom have been pushed out, some of them just time has caught up to them and they passed. Um, but you know, he, he, and he's also facing a, a, some severe economic uh, crunches, both COVID inspired, also in terms of the inefficiency of the state, um, also reunification of the currency. It, it's going to be, you know, we've been predicting this for a while. Um, Andres Oppenheimer's famous book, Castro's Last Hour, he didn't say which Castro or which hour or which year or which month. So just as well for him, I suppose. Um, so I don't want to predict any, any sort of collapse, but I do think there's going to be need to be some accommodation in some ways of the Cuban regime to these demands and whether that would provide an opening for some, again, I hate to be sound a, an unrealistic optimist. Some would say that's, that's a, that's a contradiction in terms anyway, but uh, that, uh, there would have to be some sort of transition. It, it, the pressures are going to build. Uh, and you know, I, I'm hoping that some cooler heads will prevail, both in Latin America and Europe. I think Europe can play a very strong role in this, in, in, in seeing through some sort of peaceful um, uh, accommodation, if you will, of, of pluralism uh, within Cuba that leads to eventual sort of lifting of, of controls. But for now, the controls are there. I think if, if Miguel Diaz-Canal feels threatened, they will he will clamp down harshly uh, in part because he is his back is against the wall right upcoming elections in chile a new constitution currently being drafted what's your take on chile oof this is a tough one you know there's a part of me that wants to agree with the academic consensus that rewriting the constitution is a bold and important move um and I think, it, it, you know, it, of the countries that experience, and the reasons varied across the region, that experienced those social protests at the end of 2019, Chile took a very bold move. And it did need to update its constitution. It did need to, uh, if you will, sort of shake up its very ossified uh, structures, as well as its elite circles. Um, it, you know, it, the last four presidents were the same two people. Um, and you would have had maybe a repetition of Lagos in some form, whether Ricardo Lagos' father or Lagos' son, um, something needed to be done. Uh, but the question is first is on the side of Chileans, please those that have felt this discontent, is a constitution sufficient to address many of their socioeconomic demands? Um, will that, will you know, just rewriting the structure, I mean, the Magna Carta, I can say that because I'm in London now, Magna Carta of the country uh, suffice? And I don't think it will. I think they've overbet on something. So there's going to have to be deeper reform. And I don't know how that happens. But the second and most troubling issue for me is Throughout the region, we're seeing a, a collapse and, and realignment, at best realignment, more likely a collapse, of party systems. People are disgusted with their political elite. There's a, a, the new voters are coming in and not feeling tied to the identities and cleavages of the past that, that made up these party systems. And so you have now sort of multiple identities and demands that haven't cohered yet. And how this will, those will translate into a constitution I don't know. Again, I admire the, the quotas they had in the Constitution. I admire the representation of Indigenous. It's not about that. But if you look at the number of independents that were elected, how that is going to build 
a national document that reflects a certain identity. Um, you know, so at a personal level, I'm optimistic uh, and, 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 and supportive. As a social scientist, I'm deeply worried. I, I just don't know how this happens. And it, you know, it's, it's, it, this is probably cruel to say to watch this experiment in real time, but it really is an experiment in real time. We'll see how this turns out. It's never a dull moment in Brazil where the economic <laughs> situation is worsening by the month. And it seems we are, we're in full campaign mode, a full year ahead of the elections, uh, but no great sense of significant change in the future. And, and a lot what you just said about Chile, um, about this rejection of uh, political parties and all that. I see a little bit of that in, in Brazil too. Um, and so um, how do you see things in Brazil right now? It's, it, it again, as you said, the rejection of political parties, um, disgust over public corruption, um, led to the emergence of Bolsonaro, as well as the, the and we're seeing this not just in, in Brazil, but we obviously saw it in the United States and in Europe, this um, playbook that's used by conservatives, uh, extreme conservatives, to harp on culture change and to tap in a particularly um, vitriolic sentiment that, that people feel insecure and if you need to recover their values is very much what's fueling Bolsonaro. And you know, we see this with the Bible uh, bullets and beef uh, constituency that he's tapped into. Um, that's not going to go away. Now, the question is, is what's going to happen with that middle sector, the people that just cast their vote in his favor because you know, they wanted to change um, not so much because they believed in him, uh, but they wanted to change. And the question is, is if Lula decides to run again, and he probably will, will that be sufficient to, to satisfy people's uh, um, desires for change? Or is he just the, 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 the least worst of the two? Uh, and again, I fear that you face a situation here, no matter what the outcome of the elections are, again, assuming Lula runs and he wins, or even if he doesn't, that people will get a sense this, this system simply isn't throwing up leaders that we actually want. That we need, it's failed. When I was working at the National Endowment for Democracy, I believe it was ironically, well, he's stepped aside. Fernando and he could go to those. Once told me, he says, if the United States really wanted to fund something meaningful for Latin America, the Latin American democracy, it would fund a retirement home for ex politicians. And I have to agree with that. I mean, these guys need to know when to step down. And so I really fear what will happen in the 2022 elections in, in, in um, Brazil, because people are fed up, understandably. And it's deeply polarized. And Bolsonaro, you know, he keeps going back and stoking that. He needs to do that. And once you, that genie is released from the bottle, I don't know how you put it back in, of public disgust and anger and distrust in the electoral system and institutions, it's going to be tough. And, and I don't think, again, having someone as deeply polarizing as Lula, irrespective of the, the two terms he served, which, which he did very well, is not going to actually, is not going to be the solution that most people, that country needs, I say, I fear. Yeah. On a more substantive level, how does the current climate agenda and negotiations mm. about to start with uh, COP26, um, how, does, how does Latin America uh, come out of this? Um, are they prepared going into these negotiations? Um, is it clear throughout the region or are there, there are, uh, very uneven approaches to, um, to the climate agenda? So it, you know, again, it's, it's an indication of the diversity within the region, that there are so many positions. You have Bolsonaro, who's a climate change denier. Um, you know, we've seen many manifestations of this. The election for the presidency of the Inter-American Development Bank clearly reflected that as well. 
Um, you know, you have AMLO who is peddling a sort of a bogus set of policies, whether it's it's the plant a tree initiative or uh, that his new plan for uh, electricity generation will be greener, which by all accounts, it simply doesn't look like it would be. But you have some real leaders in the hemisphere. You have Costa Rica um, and, and Alvarado is gonna make a show and he's got some plans and he's got some initiatives. Um, Argentina has convened a, a, a pre-summit, which I guess I've heard through the grapevine, they're going to promote some sort of debt for green policy relief. Now, I'm hoping, it, you know, if they're serious, and if it's a serious proposal, I hope it's not just Argentina that proposes it because people will just write it off. And I can already tell you in the UK, they're all like, yeah, Argentina's trying to get off the debt hook again. But it could be something serious because um, there are a number of countries because of the, the fiscal pump priming policies of COVID that are going to find themselves or already finding themselves in difficult uh, debt conditions. You know, maybe this could be a way to both alleviate that and further a larger global goal. Um, which goes to the other point is you know, someone has to figure out how to speak for uh, these developing countries that are gonna bear the brunt of climate change. Uh, and it, this needs to be focused more on adaptation. You know, it's, it's great when people and Latin American leaders talk about um, mitigation, reducing carbon, but the truth is, is they're not the biggest emitters, nor will they ever be. This needs to be on the agenda in terms of creating funds that for real address the, the uh, very deeply damaging effects uh, of climate change. We're looking at islands, for example, in the Caribbean that may very well just disappear. We're not talking disappear because of their livelihoods or whatever, just may actually not be on the map 30, 40 years from now. Um, what are we gonna do about that? And, and so there needs to be, you know, not, it isn't, yes, climate carbon commitments. I don't know why I'm talking alliteration so much today, but they are important, but we need to look at the immediate effects and we need to, basically developed countries need to pony up some real money, not just on the margins of the IMF, not just the Build Back Better initiatives that sound nice, but we need to see some real funds and we need to start investing that uh, in a real way. And we talk about updating the, you know, the Bretton Woods infrastructure that came out of World War II. Uh, that's one of the things that has to be first and foremost is adaptation. Um, uh, and, and, we just not, and, 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 the, and we're seeing the consequences of migration, food insecurity, um, uh, infrastructure. And, and the truth is, these are already beginning to hit and will hit, and particularly with the country I live in now in the UK, which specializes in insurance uh, markets overseas, it's going to see a, could see a real threat to its, ins its insurance, particularly in the hotels and a lot of these areas that it's, it's currently invested in, in the Caribbean, as well as take it, to make this not just a US focal point, as well as the countries of Europe, uh, experiencing massive migration from the Caribbean, the Commonwealth countries, for the UK, as well as for Spain and a lot of the countries that are being affected in Spanish-speaking Latin America. Right. I'm really interested in getting your take on the importance, on the relevance of Latin America to the UK. Um, given your experience uh, previously with um, Council of the Americas, you've got a good sense of uh, American corporate uh, strategic interests in the region. And so I wonder now, sitting in London, how do you see the priorities at the moment and what are the privileged, let's say, strategic interests between the UK and the region? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and we just before this recording, we, we were talking about me coming here and why. One of the reasons is because there just isn't much interest in the UK in Latin America. Um, the uh, you know, Chatham House, it's a 100 year plus organization. This is the first time they've had a Latin America program in their history. 
Um, and, and it only came about through a few core funders. And so one of the challenges that I've uh, taken on and, and enjoy is trying to find where the pockets of interest are. We looked at Latin American, UK trade, for example, and in terms of whether it's UK investments in Latin America and areas like fintech, financial technology, insurance, services, where they have a really a comparative advantage, it's minuscule. I mean, even Brazil and Mexico rank far below their rankings in terms of economic weight uh, and consumption of those products. And vice versa, when it comes to, in particular, let's take Mercosur exports and agriculture, beef, and some of them not sustainable, which is, I'll talk about this in a second, it's a perceptual problem in the UK. You know, as the UK experiences now supply chains crisis, not just because of Brexit, but because of COVID, we're looking at it. I can't remember the exact, I think it's around only 7% of UK imports of food come from uh, Mercosur countries, in particular dairy, um, chicken, and, and beef, and meat products. That's tiny, given the comparative advantage of these countries. And this is a huge opportunity. And because of that, you don't have, and because of past colonial ties that England doesn't really have, exception of Belize and the Commonwealth countries with the region, it really doesn't have. And I gathered, shortly upon coming here, I gathered together over a breakfast, a group of uh, uh, British businesses, some of whom were investing in Latin America, others who weren't. And many of them said, we just don't have the contact. We just don't, that isn't, we don't look that way. It isn't our, in our interest. Many of them felt that the foreign policy or trade policy had been outsourced to the EU before and they never really taken it on. But there's also another important thing is that a lot of people said that their perceptions of Latin America were very, very negative. And I'll say one thing, and I don't mean to sound condescending towards Brits and their attitude, but it's, it, I can't tell you how many times when I talk to a Brit and I say, well, I work on Latin Americans, they say, oh yeah, I saw Narco. That was a great series on Netflix. Like that has nothing to do with Latin America. Right. And then I met a guy who was shamelessly going on his vacation with his fiance to do the, the Pablo Escobar tour, which is insulting. So part of this too is just perception. And I think the, the UK needs to get over this. Uh, and you know, there's Latin American studies programs in the UK are operating on a shoestring. There's a chance that the University of London's program was gonna be cut entirely. It, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. I think it will happen. I mean, I, I've gotten a sense that the um, Department of International Trade here is really beginning to staff up. They've put offices in, in Brazil. They've put offices, they've expanded their, well, they have a large offices in Brazil. They've put more people. They've expanded their offices in Mexico. I think they're really stepping up. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's going to be a long slog. Yeah. Latin America has been a global model for human rights bodies uh, with the inter-American human rights system. And I know that in uh, in a previous life you were very closely involved also with the, with human rights um, issue, um, but that system in Latin America is coming under strains. So, what do we need to know about the current situation of um, human rights in the region? Yeah, you know, it's it's I, I cut my teeth. You know, a lot of the people of our generation who focused on Latin America probably first got involved in the eighties during, during the, the Cold War and the Civil Wars in Central America. That was a little before my time, but I really cut my teeth in the 1990s. And arguably the 1990s were in many ways the high water mark of, of human rights and, and democratic defense. You had the Santiago Declaration, later you had the Inter-American Charter um, on, for Democracy, but that, that sort of went uh, by the wayside. Um, that's clearly faded. And there are a number of reasons why. I, I think one is, is the uh, growing uh, assertion of independence of Latin American countries and how elections have brought to power varying governments of different interests. 
that has splintered away from the, the sort of shared common identity under the inter-American system. So countries as diverse as uh, well, actually Dilma Rousseff was threatening to pull out of the inter-American system or was very critical of it, uh, given the, it's actually over the, the case of the um, Jingwa people in the Rio Monche Dam. Um, you have people who've openly attacked it like Chavez. Venezuela is officially pulling out of the inter-American system, it's pulled out. Um, the Congress of the Dominican Republic declared that it had never become part of officially the, ratified the decision to enter. So it was no, therefore it, it was not um, obligated to comply with the decision concerning the treatment of Haitian immigrants, Haitian, Haitian Dominicans, um, Dominicans of Haitian descent. So we're seeing these tensions emerge, but it's simply that, that, that fragile consensus that undergirds any sort of uh, sharing of state sovereignty has really broken in many ways. Uh, and, it, we, and we've seen it increase. And of course, the Trump administration did nothing uh, in its favor. It, it you know, refused to sit in on discussions with uh, the Inter-American Commission. It, it basically mocked it at times. So you know, besides the traditional issues of funding and so on, there's just a sense of a, of a growing assertion of national sovereignty and national interest over human rights that again is going to be difficult to, to, to recapture, especially given the levels of, as I mentioned earlier, the level of polarization and diversity, ideological diversity within the hemisphere. It's not, it, you know, it, 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 it comes again from both sides. If, 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 if Trump isn't abiding by it, then why should Maduro? Why should whoever? And so, we're, we're, you know, it, it's, it's in a very difficult place where it's being whipsawed by competing interests. Yeah. This is a podcast, so our listeners won't get a chance to see what your office looks like, but I imagine <laughs> I imagine you go through a, a huge number of reports, articles, books, etc. Um, and I wonder, by just looking at all of that, you're pretty much up to date as to what's out there in terms of uh, emerging topics, emerging themes. And uh, I wonder if you could suggest some possible research areas or issues that address policy questions in a region that has always attracted scholars with a particular policy bent. So if you were director of graduate studies at one of our institutions um, in Latin American politics, what would you point out in terms of uh, topics that are out there that will only grow in importance? You know, I think the one thing is, is, is a question of Latin American foreign policy and not looked at necessarily through the prism of China or Russia alone, but too often I think scholars don't pay enough attention to the agency of Latin American governments to carve out their own foreign policies. And, you know, in the U.S. is certainly guilty of this. In, in the 70s and 80s, particularly in the 80s, you know, the, the, com the common trope was you know, Latin America under U.S. hegemony. And there's plenty of very good scholarship and a lot of good work that could be done on how Latin American governments are both carving this out at a time of waning U.S. influence, are drawing from their very uh, rich traditions of, of commitment to liberal uh, institutions. They, they're really one of the best Latin American states or some of the best signatories to international treaties. See, often them Latin American states historically seeing international law as being one of the ways in which they could protect themselves from the United States, but also project their own influence. And looking now at how Latin American governments are readjusting this and how this is happening in this uh, changes in the changes in domestic politics and foreign policy. We, we've gone from a government under Peña Nieto and, and that, you know, in, in Mexico that was a little more active, 
certainly after the the um, the years under when when Jorge Castañeda was a foreign minister, um, under Vicente Fox, to really asserting Mexican's Mexicans priorities overseas to now a much more shrinking foreign policy. We saw this in the case of Lula and the PT in Brazil, and now uh, basically a Bolsonaro has very little interest in in uh, Latin and in foreign relations. You know how this is being carried out and being negotiated, even within the halls of. These, uh, uh, these foreign ministries, I think it's profoundly interesting and it really goes a long way to understanding you know, the world that's shifting, where, what role Latin America can play, rather than just seeing this as a binary question, US, China, China's bad, US is good, US is bad, China's good. I think we need to understand the, the role of Latin America within that. There's one other thing I would say too, is, is just sort of looking again at the levels of, looking more at a comparative government issue, to levels of polarization. Uh, we get, we've been tracking this for a while in polls such as Latino Barometer and the La Pop Latin American Public Opinion Project. I think ways that these are manifesting themselves and people um, carving out new identities and interests and staking out new positions is going to be very interesting and what that means for democracy. Um, you know, Latin American studies have been a test tube for uh, often, particularly for comparative politics and for political development. And I, and I think that we have a lot to be able to contribute. In fact, a lot of things we see in Europe and the United States now, we saw in Latin America a few decades ago. Right. Which leads me to, to my last question. Um, given your experience in New York, possibly um, some time in Washington, being now in London, how does that, how does that make your job that much more different? How does, how does the, the physical place of London and the different constituencies differ from what you were accustomed to in, in, in the US and in New York, for example. Does it really change how you go about doing your job? It does. First of all, um, the weather's a lot worse. Uh, second, the, uh, the distance is a lot greater too. Now, of course, there's been COVID. COVID hit uh, just shortly after I arrived, but I haven't traveled to the region. Uh, and and you know, I probably will be, but I'm not gonna be. I used to travel twice a month easily before. Uh, really consistently for the last 15 years almost. Um, so yeah, 15 years. Um, actually, more, so actually more than that, probably since 1997. Um, and I, you know, my trip trip's going to be far, far and fewer between right now. The, um, but in terms of my, you know, the day-to-day -day job, this has, and this has been the benefit, is it has focused me to look a lot less at the dimensions between U.S. Latin American relations, which was really the prism which. Uh, uh, I think the U.S. looks at Latin America. It's not necessarily the way Latin Americans look at their own relations. So I think it's it's helped break those blinders in many ways. It's important, and also understand. You know, to repeat what I was saying before, the the I don't want to negligence is too negative a word, but the the lack of attention of a UK or the EU on Latin America, but also the potential for the richness of that relationship. Uh, it's a sort of point I've made often is that the U.S. is influence begins to decline, this is a great, and we worry about China's influence or Russia's influence, or, you know, to varying degrees. This is a real role for, especially in the UK now with Brexit, UK talks about being a, a global power, a global Britain is a, is a catchphrase of Boris Johnson. Um, you know, what better way to do that than to try to, you know, with, uh, in alliance with other countries, begin to broker better relations with Latin America. So I think it's an opportunity, to be honest, um, that didn't exist before. Um, but it just certainly doesn't come natural. 
Well, we can't let you leave, Chris, without asking you to make one or two recommendations. As you know, tradition here at EconoPolitics, we ask our guests for uh, a specific recommendation or two regarding uh, a specific uh, country or the, the region in, in a, as a whole. So Chris Sabatini, what interesting insider tips do you have for us? Okay, so I love Peruvian food. Can't get enough of it. So my first recommendations for restaurants, nothing novel actually, um, but I, you know, I, I, I literally, I eat so much ceviche when I'm in Peru, my stomach feels sour by the end. Um, it really does. And, you know, there, there are a couple of the standards like La Mar, <clears throat> El Muelle or Segundo Muelle are two of my favorites. La Mar and, and El Segundo Muelle and Muelle. And, and they're, they're kind of chains, but they, I, I've tried sort of more off the beaten path places, but I find that they have the best opportunity, best options in terms of um, Leche de Tigre and other things that others have more traditional. So those are, the, the, I, I have to hit those places every time I go to Peru. In uh, Mexico, uh, one of my favorite places is, I, I don't know the name, it may not even have a name, but if you go to Coyoacan in the plaza, behind the church, if you're facing the church, it's sort of like 11 o'clock uh, behind the church, is an amazing garage or warehouse with all these different food stalls. Uh, they have pozole, they specialize in pozole, tamales, tacos, everything. It is like, it is like a smorgasbord, um, a very large smorgasbord and a very filling one because you get, you know, from stall to stall, you get different options. Those are always going to be uh, my favorite places. And then there's a place that I cannot remember the name on in, in the main square in Coyoacan that has a great, a great mezcal bar. In fact, that, that's a specialty. I mean, you stay away from the mezcal. Uh, it's it's charms are still lost on me, but if I just want to sort of uh, feel a little bit of the, the local color, I'll try a few mezcals. And it has, a, for me, it has a self-limiting uh, element because there's just so much you can drink of that stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. There's much more to discuss, um, Chris. So we look forward to checking in with you again in the near future. So thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, Joseph. I really appreciate it. To our listeners and faithful followers, thank you for listening and supporting EconoPolitics. Please let us know what, what you think of today's episode and tune in again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics. Until then, stay well, stay safe.